0: This week on the show, we covered the question that Julia Evans has, why DNS is still hard to learn, Unix support 50 years ago, and why DMR is involved in that, ZFS replication tools, and why one is not enough. Between ISA and PCI, PCs had EISA and BLB. That's what Ruben Schade reminds us about. Old Computer Challenge version 3 and how that went by Solit Pen and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode 526, us Replication Tools, recorded on the 30th of August, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash Now, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash BSD Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. Hope you had a nice week and we're just waiting for this episode to come out and here it is. Well, maybe other things in your life are more important. We can totally understand that. Uh, But this article in the headlines, the first one, is why DNS is still hard to learn. And maybe people may already be nodding and saying, yeah, yeah, it's always a DNS problem. Julia Evans has uh, more information about the whole topic. And she writes, I write a lot about technologies that I found hard to learn about. A while back, my friend Sumana asked me an interesting question. Why are these things so hard to learn about? And why do they seem so mysterious? For example, take DNS. We've been using DNS since the 80s, for more than 35 years. There's a link to the RFC, which is 1034, if you want to impress your friends with your uh, random senseless knowledge it's used in every website on the internet and it's pretty stable in a lot of ways it works the exact same way it did 30 years ago but it took me years to figure out how to confidently debug dns issues and i've been i've seen a lot of other programmers struggle with debugging dns problems as well so what's going on here are a couple of thoughts about why learning so to troubleshoot dns problems is hard And she notes, I'm not going to explain DNS very much in this point. She implement DNS in a weekend or DNS blog posts uh, of hers for more about how DNS actually works. So the next subheading is, it's not because DNS is super hard. When I finally learned how to troubleshoot DNS problems, my reaction was, what? That was it? That's not that hard. I felt a little bit cheated. I could explain to you everything that I found confusing about DNS in a few hours. So... If DNS is not all that complicated, why did it take me so many years to figure out how to troubleshoot pretty basic DNS issues, like my domain doesn't resolve even though I've set it up correctly, or DIG and my browser have different DNS results? Why? And I wasn't alone in finding DNS hard to learn. I've talked to a lot of smart friends who are very experienced programmers about DNS of the years, and many of them either didn't feel comfortable making simple DNS changes to the websites or were confused about basic facts about DNS, work, how DNS works, or did understand DNS basics pretty well, but had some of the same knowledge gaps that I'd struggled with. So if we're struggling with the same things about DNS, what's going on? Why is it hard to learn for so many people? Here are some ideas. A lot of the system is hidden. When you make a DNS request on your computer, the basic theory is first, your computer makes a request to a server called Resolver. Second, the Resolver checks its cache and makes requests to some other servers called authoritative name servers. Here's a few things that you don't see. The resolver's cache, what's in there? Which library code in your computer is making a DNS request? Is it libc get adder info? If so, is uh, it's the get adder info from glibc or musle or Apple? Is it your browser's DNS code? Uh, it is different. Uh, is it a different custom DNS implementation? All of these options behave slightly different and have different configurations. Approaches to caching, available features, etc. For example, Musle DNS didn't support TCP until early 2023. Then there's the conversation part between the resolver and the authoritative name server. I think a lot of DNS issues would be so simple to understand if you could magically get a trace of exactly which authoritative name servers were queried downstream during your request and what they said, right? So dealing with this hidden system, a couple of ideas on how to deal with hidden systems. Just teaching people what the hidden systems are makes a huge difference. For a long time, I had no idea what my computer had many different DNS libraries that were used in different situations. And I was confused about this for literally years. There's a big part of my approach. So with MESS, with DNS, we tried out this fishbowl approach, where it shows you some parts of the system that are normally hidden, which is the conversation with the resolver and the authoritative name server. Uh, she feels like it would be extremely cool to extend DNS to include a debugging information section. Like, it looks like this already exists. Uh, oh, apparently it's called extended DNS errors, or EDE. And tools are slowly adding support for it. So she provides a section about extended DNS errors and how they look like. There's also a section about confusing tools. Even though a lot of DNS stuff is hidden, there are a lot of ways to figure out what's going on by using DIG. For example, you can use DIG plus no res- not, not rescue, no recurse to figure out if a given DNS resolver has a particular record in its cache. 8.8.8.8 seems to return serve fail response if the response isn't cached. Here's what it looks like for google.com, and she provides the output. And for homestarrunner.com, she provides a different uh, result to compare these. And she describes what you can see and what the sections are. And there's a section about dealing with those confusing tools. Some ideas for improving those are explain the output, make new, more friendly tools, and make Nick's output a little more friendly. Then there's a section about a uh, DIG plus YAML. One quick note on DIG. Newer versions of DIG do have a plus YAML output format, which feels a little clearer to her, uh, though it's too verbose for her taste. A pretty simple DNS response doesn't fit on her screen. Okay, There's also some weird gotchas. Dealing with weird gotchas is um, explained here. She closes with... Um, that's all for now. I'd love to hear other thoughts about what makes DNS or your favorite mysterious technology hard to learn. Yeah, always good. I like I like her blog post. She always has uh, interesting points covered and makes it really easy to understand by step-by-step by step going deeper. I don't like DNS. <laughs> <laughs> but you use it like everyone else.
1: I have no choice. My hosts file just became unmanageable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, next up, we have... Uh, PDF. Um, I, I don't know why this is a PDF. Um, this is by Brian Carpenter, and it is called A Letter from Ritchie. Brian Carpenter, Honorary Academic the University of Auckland, New Zealand, July 2020, 2023. Brian writes, in 1973, I was a systems programmer, and my first job after university in the controls group of the MPS, Proton Synchrotron, Division of CERN, the European Particles Physics Lab in Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland. I've been working for two years on the software for the Imlac PDS-1 display mini computers used by the Synchrotron's operators. Of course, the Imlacs were networked in a very simple way to an IBM 1800. We knew that we needed more computers to progressively replace all the manual control systems for the rapidly expanding Synchrotron complex. We knew they'd be mini computers, and in 1973, the obvious choice was PDP-11s or PDP-11s, I'm not sure. In those days, many computers were essentially sold unbundled and you had to pick your software as an afterthought. Our bosses were engineers and physicists who to be frank, didn't understand the software. So we bought a couple of PDP-11s and began to wonder what to do with them. The plan was clearly to build a network. There was no such thing as ethernet, so a network was designed as a star. Somebody else was designing with data links that would connect any two PDP-11s. I got the job of figuring out the software details Since I was the local expert after designing the very simple IMLAC network, the first thing I needed was an operating system. Enter Mark Krieger. Mark was an ambulant New Yorker who was in our group for a year or so as a scientific associate. He helped with the software design of the network we were planning to build. I think it must have been him who showed me the ACM SIGOPS proceedings with an article about a new operating system for the PDP-11. The exact text of that article is hard to find, but the final version is available at 2. Mark soon returned to New York and became one of the founders of White Smiths Limited along with PJ Plogger and Gabriel Pham. White Smith created Idris, the first Unix knockoff and the first commercial Unix C compiler. After reading about Unix, I thought it looked much more interesting when digital equipment's rather scrappy offering of PDP-11 operating systems. So I did what you had to do in 1973. I sent an air mail letter to the authors of the Unix paper and Dennis Ritchie, graciously replied within a few days. Technically his reply was very interesting, but the bureaucracy and probably serious money needed to get hold of Unix was unfortunately out of my league at the time, especially with bosses who believed that all software was a small matter of programming. So I did what any systems programmer would have done in 1973. I continued work on my own small operating system for the PDP 11-10 that was supposed to act as a message switch. It was called Minimon, and it was coded in PL11. In 1974, I took both Minimon and PL11 with me to Massey University in New Zealand, where they were used to build a homemade terminal concentrator. Unix and C finally entered my life about 10 years later. My letter to Ritchie and Thompson is long gone, but I was astounded when Lars Brinkhoff recently told me that Ritchie's apply had resurfaced via an ancient deck tape. Richie was only a few years older than me, so I suppose his helpful letter can be described as collegial, but I felt that it showed exemplary, profession, exemplary professionalism. Fifty years later, I feel the same. And the letter is included here. Mr. B. E. Carpenter, NPS Division, CERN, 1211, Geneva 23, Switzerland. Dear Mr. Carpenter, this is in response to your letter of November 27, reference MPS slash CO slash BC slash JE. I don't have any idea what that means. The Unix system, its software, and its documentation are proprietary to the Bell system and are currently being released under a license from the Western Electric Company only to educational institutions. The possibility of extending such licenses to governmental and commercial organizations is being considered, however. To obtain information about such license, you may write to Mr. R. G. Champasian address. You should also send a copy of your letter to Mr. S. P. Morgan, Mr. Champazian will acknowledge your letter and will inform you as soon as a decision has been reached. In answer to your specific questions, there is currently no user-available method to lock a process in core to meet real-time constraints. This should be very easy to add, however, since the system has internal to it a flag which prevents swapping the process's core image. Somewhat more work would be required to arrange that physical core occupied by the process lies at the edge of available space, which is desirable to prevent fragmentation of physical address space. The system will run with only one RK disk, although naturally both response time and available disk space are better with the swapping disk and the user file space on separate devices. Incidentally, I think with SigOps conference version of the paper was overly optimistic about the amount of memory needed. We are unable to support machines with less than 32 kilowords of core. There is no automatic way of initiating a process in response to an interrupt. The approach we would take to this is to have an existing process which wakes up in response to the interrupt and creates a new process. Unless the time requirements are very strict, I don't think this is a problem. Although Unix for non-segmentation PDP11 still exists, we are unable to support it. Since its internal structure is so different from the current system and it requires so much handcrafting to adapt it to the hardware configuration. It's trivial to introduce a new user program such as a compiler, since one merely need merely place the file containing the program in a particular directory. Since device drivers are in general fairly easy, Uh, since the interface between the system and the drivers is quite clean. It does require some knowledge of the way the system operates. Fortran definitely supports the floating-point hardware. In fact, we recommend it if much use is to be made of Fortran. The compiler generates the same kind of semi interpretive threaded code as does DEC Fortran. I suspect it is somewhat slower than DECs since Fortran is not heavily used by us. We have not felt compelled to optimize it as carefully. If you're at all adventurous in this area, I can advise using the C, which is a language in which Unix itself and most of the software are written. C is a true compiler which generates excellent code and supports both single and double double precision floating-point arithmetic. I can give no definitive answer as far as cost is concerned. As I indicated, Unix is currently being made available only to educational institutions. This is on a cost-free basis. I can't predict any charges that might be made should licenses be extended on a broader basis, but I doubt if they would seem excessive. I'm not sure you mean by software support. Of course, all the ordinary software comes with the system, editor, language processor, utilities, and so forth. If you refer to continuing support, the situation is still not very clear. We hope to be able to send out occasional mailings describing bugs found in new software and to generate tapes of the appropriate source programs. Still, you will have to take into account the fact that your only source of information is a two-man operation on Ocean Away. DMR. <laughs> cool. I, I think the, the Unix support case is still uh, being worked out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could very well be. <laughs> All right. Uh, The news roundup has uh, ZFS Replications Tools, the namesake of this episode. And apparently there's more than one because the whole list uh, is available on this blog. Oh, they've been replicated. Uh, Yeah, of course, with ZFS. (laughs) Uh, Evilham.com has them all. And the introduction reads, Back when I first started using FreeBSD and ZFS, I needed tools with an extremely low barrier of entry that did their job well. When it comes to creating and pruning snapshots, the job was first done by that zfs Periodic. Over time, however, even with minor improvements on my part, it has come short of my current needs. As inspired by Dan Langell's wonderful blog, Dan always writes great blog posts that end up being lovely complementary documentation. Yeah, I can totally second that. Um, I document here my somewhat bumpy road when it comes to ZFS replication tools and why you might want to use something different at each step. So there's a whole table of contents there, so it's ongoing and a big journey. So the quick reminder of ZFS, ZFS is nowadays, at least on FreeBSD and Linux, actually open ZFS, and the definition is given. I think most of our listeners know this. But let's read it again. OpenZFS is an advanced file system and volume manager, which was originally developed for Solaris and is now maintained by the OpenZFS community. This repository contains the code for running OpenZFS on Linux and FreeBSD, and hopefully many others to come. So amongst the many beautiful things of ZFS, there is a fact that it works in a copy-and-write fashion, which, among other things, enables it to create snapshots in an instantaneous fashion, like instant. That is, we can assign a name to a known state with, e.g. ZFS snapshot-R, Z root at good state. Or even shorter, ZFS snap, because you can abbreviate that, minus R, Z root at good state. Or whatever you name your pool, Uh, instead of Z root. Keep on on working, and if we get to a bad state, discard any changes made since then by issuing a rollback. That means we can have a very handy way of having real-life save points and work relaxed fashion. Together with ZFS send and receive, we quickly have a basis for remote backup a system that is incremental. Now that ZFS data set encryption is a thing, it too can be encrypted. So first, uh, the snapshot creation and pooling with ZFS periodic is um, described because that's what they used uh, back in 2019 uh, when they were just a Linux user and then jumping to FreeBSD, they used this utility. And they describe a little bit how it's used and what uh, what the issues are. Then they uh, used ZFS replication with ZXFER snapshots, take care of local mess ups, but they don't serve as a backup. For that, I took to ZXFIR, which is simple to use and has worked great with some caveats. A lovely thing of ZXFER is that it supports an R-sync mode that allows you to backup remote systems that do not support ZFS to a ZFS based system that takes care of snapshots and so on. Caveats, though, is mostly even with a pull based approach, the expert doesn't protect much against snapshots disappearing on the source, which means that there is a somewhat plausible scenario where pulling data results in breaking certain retention policies. While there is a dash "-g", lowercase g flag, to protect all snapshots, it means that we have to replicate snapshots pruning on the destination system, but cannot create snapshots as they could collide with the source snapshots. Okay, so that means ZFS Periodic and Zxfer are better than nothing and work decently but have important limitations. And uh, when encrypting datasets and got added to OpenZFS, they realized that we need to use ZFS Send-W or else the backup will happen unencrypted. So I wrote a patch for ZXFER to do just that. And you can help land that patch. Oh, nice plug here in ZXFer. It is basically only missing the man page and usage text, but my man page syntax is rusty and time is not on abundant available commodity. I'd love to help you land this change though. Then they did snapshot creating and pruning with Sanoid after having read Dan Langel's blog about it. They based their configuration mostly on Dan's uh, post, so check out that. That's linked, of course, from their blog post and also from our, well, indirectly from our show notes and then they did the migration of zfs periodic to xanoid they describe how to use that and the commands they had as well as some of the output and what's the issue there yeah this is as dan documented works wonderfully after taking into account the uh, caveat and using lock f when installing xanoid we also got syncoid as a replication tool uh, they have some issues with permissions, apparently. While trying to replicate these datasets, I realized that it expects either to run as root or have sudo available. Of course, that's not ideal, as I prefer to rely on ZFS allow and do not even have sudo as an available command. There's a flag, dash dash, no privilege escalation or elevation, which means circumvent these checks, but the fact is that it fails and requires the flag to work as non-root. It kind of is a red flag for them. Mm-hmm. There is also an issue with public key limitations they seem to have. Um, but altogether, this kind of works. But when looking to refine it, they realized that it does not offer them the benefit regarding for when it comes to protecting the snapshots. Then they remembered ZREPL. After getting frustrated again, they realized it wasn't quite looking as they were expecting. They were so sure that it was doable. Turns out they had read about ZREPL some months ago and checked the documentation to determine it was something they needed to use. So this remembering caused them to look deeply into Sanoid and Synchoid. But hey, at least now they are very sure <laughs> what they want and can probably quickly adapt their renaming script for the migration to Zedrapple. They conclude with I really should blog more often if anything to save me some time. This will have a two-parter um, with this one what is being what I've tried and why I'm not keeping it and the second one being how I get to set up Zedrapple to my liking. They also added some bonus tools from the Fediverse that were posted, and I guess that's rest of the blog post. And if there's part two coming, then we'd be happy to cover that too.
1: Okay, next up we have uh, a blog post by um, Ruben at RubenNerd.com. And Ruben writes, between ISA and PCI, PCs had EISA and VLB. The late 1980s, early 1990s, were a fascinating period of the computer industry. I like to say that about every time period, but you get the idea. I only wish sometimes I was either alive or old enough to understand what was evolving at that time. In creating the PC for mostly off-the-shelf components, IBM had unintentionally set the wheels in Notion for an open-ish computer ecosystem. Other computers, like other computer companies like Apple had their third-party cloners, but this was the first time no one business or entity controlled the destiny of a platform. Though I bet Commodore could have used divine control by that time period, eh? Um, this wasn't... From lack of trying and attempt to steer the direction of the PC market, IBM had attempted to to supplant the AT ISA bus with their own microchannel architecture with their PS2 machines in 1987. Fun fact, FreeBSD1 didn't support microchannel. ISA's bottlenecks and limitations were becoming a severe hindrance uh, to further improvements to the PC, and MCA would let IBM collect royalties. PC clone manufacturers were having none of it. This is where history glitches a couple of times. Take a look at most computer motherboards from this time period and you will certainly to find a mix of ISA and PSA and PCI slots, but there were transitional fossils, so to speak, and so they look unusual. The first was the Extended Industry Standard Architecture, or E-ISA, introduced a year after MCA. These slots were a functional superset of ISA, maintained full backwards compatibility, and crucially, were royalty-free. The staggered pins appear similar of the slot 1 used by Pentium 2 in the following decade with the same potential for alignment issues, but with them came 32-bit data bus, higher data rates, and software controls in lieu of jumpers. By 1993, graphics cards were reaching even EISA's improved bandwidth limits, so Visa went back to ISA and implemented the Visa Local Bus, or VLB. As I mentioned on Mastodon, I only learned this week that it wasn't a tongue-in-cheek initialism for very long bus. So they call the bendy buses, uh, on account of the sheer size of these cards. Unlike EISA, which extended the ISA bus connector, VLB maintained compatibility by adding an additional connector in line with the ISA bus that would later be physically reused for PCI. The result is a bizarre Frankenstein card with a PCI looking pins on one end and ISA on the other end. It was quite normal for cards to have large blank sections simply to accommodate the width of these connectors. PCI was introduced scarcely a year later after VLB, and by 1997, the graphics industry had begun moving to AGP. But now with all the hoops modern graphics card manufacturers are going through to accommodate additional power delivery, we may yet see another weird mishmash of connectors again. Maybe.
0: Hmm. Yeah, at least didn't the EU try to make the chargers for mobile phones uniform to everyone's... uh... (laughs) surprise <laughs> that's a different problem <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but yeah, yeah so many adapters so many cables and they just uh, the old ones are just laying around and collect dust
1: i mean apple Apple did a different bus architecture for the um the, the last intel mac pro i can't remember what it's called um i think we're just gonna get pci i think we're just stuck with it Something, you yeah. against PCI. you can you can move a lot of data through pci yeah, still today. You want to put those spicy pins next to the fun data pins?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, remember our old computer? No, that wasn't all, our computer challenge. But the old computer challenge by Celine. Well, oh, it seems like well, the internet uh, died. Tom disconnected, but no worries. We will be back again. Uh, the old computer challenge by Celine is the one we will cover today because part two is out and it seems like it came to an unexpected uh, end uh, because it has postmortem in the title. Here it goes. Challenge report. Hi, I've not been very communicative about my week during the old computer challenge version three. And Tom just reconnected. Uh, The reason is that I failed it. Time for a postmortem. Analysis of what happened to understand the failure. For the context, the last time I was using a restricted hardware uh, was for the first edition of the challenge two years ago. Last year's challenge was about reducing the internet connectivity. So the second uh, thing is wasn't prepared. I have to admit, I didn't prepare anything. I thought I could simply limit the requirements to my laptop, either on OpenBSD or OpenSUSE, and enjoy the challenge. It turns out it was more complicated than that. OpenBSD memory limitation code wasn't working on my system for some reason. I should report this issue. OpenSUSE refused to boot with 512 megabytes of memory under 30 minutes, even by adding swap, and I couldn't log in through GDM once there. I had to figure a backup plan, which turned out to be using Alpine Linux installed on a USB memory stick. Memory and core number restriction worked out of the box. Figuring out how to effectively reduce the frequency was hard. But I did it finally. From this point I had a non-encrypted Alpine Linux on a poor storage medium. That what would I do with this? Nothing much. Memory limitation. It turns out that in two years my requirements evolved a bit. 512 megabytes wasn't enough to use a web browser as we mentioned last episode with JavaScript and while I thought it wouldn't be much of a big deal, it was. I regularly need to go on some website, doing it on my non-trusted smartphone in a no-go So I, or is a no-go, so I need a computer. And Firefox on 512 megabytes just doesn't work. Chromium almost works, but it depends on the page. And WebKit browser often didn't work well enough. There's a sample of websites I needed to visit, the OVH web console, uh, the Patreon web page. Oh, by the way, BSD Now is, well, has a Patreon <laughs> page. So, sorry, that was kind of an <laughs> in-between thing. Uh, the bank service, some online stores, Mastodon, a Kanban tool. Oh, nice. And uh, Deeple for translation. Uh, the, replying to people on some open source project, Discord discourse forums. And managing stuff in GitHub. GitHub tool isn't always on par with the web interface. Okay, so that's quite uh, limiting. For this reason, I often had to use my work computer to do the tasks and ended up inadvertently continuing on this computer. In addition to web browsing, some programs like Language Tool, a Java GUI spell check program, required too much memory to be started, so I couldn't even spell check my blog posts. A spell is not as complete as Language Tool. Although uh, there aren't too many errors as far as I can tell on um, your blog post, Celine, so keep blogging. Don't get distracted by typos. CPU limitation. At first, when I thought about the rules for the third edition, the CPU frequency seemed to be the worst part. In practice, the system was almost swapping continuously, but wasn't CPU bound. Hardware acceleration was fast enough to play videos smoothly. If you can make good use of the 512 megabytes of memory, you certainly won't have CPU problems security issues this is not related to the challenge itself but i felt a bit stuck with my untrusted alpine linux i have some ssh gpt keys that are secured on two systems and my passwords i almost can't do anything without them and i didn't want to take the risk of compromising my security chain for the challenge yeah not make things worse uh, security wise when you're doing this challenge in fact since i started using cubes os i started Being reluctant to mix all my data on a single system, even the other one I'm used to being working with, which has all the credentials too. But CubeSOS is the anti old computer challenge as you need to throw the more hardware you can to make it useful. Not a complete failure though, however, the challenge wasn't such a complete failure for me. While I can't say I played by the rules, I definitely or it definitely helped me to realize the changes in my computer use over the last years. This was the point when I started the offline laptop project three years ago, which transformed into the old computer challenge the year after. I tried to use less the computer as I wasn't able to fulfill the challenge requirements and did some stuff IRL at home and outside. The week went super fast. I was astonished to realize it. It's already over. This also forced me to look for solutions so I spent a lot of time trying to make Firefox fit in 512 megabytes. To LDR it didn't work. The least memory I'd needed nowadays is 1 gigabyte of memory. It's still not too much compared to what we have nowadays. My main system has 32 gigs but it's twice the first requirements I have set. Okay, in conclusion. It seems everyone had a nice week with the challenge. I'm very happy to see the community enjoying this every year. I may not be the challenge paragon for this year, but it was useful for me. And since then, I could stop thinking about how to improve my computer usage. Yeah, that I think is a good uh, takeaway, even though, or no matter how the challenge went. Next challenge would be, or should be two weeks long. Oh yeah, also good, so that you can see that you can really survive.
1: <laughs> cool. It's, it's really cool. And it wouldn't be a challenge if it was really easy. Um. Yeah,
0: and it, it's not too challenging. And I think the how do how I use my computer, how often do I use certain apps, and how stuck am I in certain apps? Like whatever it is, YouTube or Reddit or whatever, it could very well be that slowing things down hardware wise would also mean you slow down your use of these apps because if they're so quickly available, then of course you consume them more. It yeah. Guilty as charged here,
1: but no, it's really cool. I'd love to know what other people's experiences were were with this challenge because, yeah, maybe it's just not enough memory. But it's kind of sad because five hundred twelve megabytes of memory should be enough for
0: anyone. It's quite a lot of memory, according to some people. It's a lot of memory. Yeah, you could fit a lot of stuff in there already, but the apps are very heavy. We had that in a previous episode, right, where everything is Electron now that just eats memory for breakfast.
1: So some some articles are big, some articles are short. Some articles are just just little bits, just little bits. And today, Something fits
0: in the beastie bits. <laughs>
1: yeah, first up in the beastie bits, we have a video, which I didn't watch because it's 55 minutes long. And it is uh, deckuser.github.io, And it is installing and using Research Unix version 7 on the Open h PDP 11 emulator. A video walking the user through the process of installing and using Research Unix 7 on the Open simh pdp11 slash 45 and pdp11 slash 70 emulators enjoy i i'm sure you will I, I just i didn't have time to watch an hour long
0: mm. video um but it looks good yep next thing i found a whole lot of cheat sheets on github uh, github.com slash cheat slash cheat sheets and there you can start scrolling uh, pretty much for any unix command or other commands or programs that you can think of uh, there's a cheat sheet for that. It turns out they collected some of them or made some of them their own. I'm not sure. Um, this repository contains community source cheat sheets to be used for cheat and similar applications. So everything from seventh uh, zip till uh, what's the last one? Zsh, of course, with of course all the other uh, numbers or letters in between. And I think I came in uh, via the Vim plugins. It turns out uh, to that repository, and then found it interesting enough to be added to the show
1: if you if you did zx for you'd probably guarantee
0: to be the last command of the list <laughs> yeah that yeah that is uh, definitely good to have as a cheat sheet
1: next we have a post on reddit on the, the slash BSD subreddit from dragasit um introducing the bsd.cafe i'm so excited to get coffee on bsd in one place um <laughs> They are excited to present the first building block of the BSD Cafe project. When I registered this domain months ago, I envisioned a themed bar, the bar's not a cafe, a bar where we could casually chat about BSD systems, Linux, and open source technology among friends, acquaintances, and patrons. But like any bar, discussions cover a wide range of topics while respecting everyone. BSD Cafe will be a hub of various tools and services provided by BSD. The first brick is a new Mastodon instance, a gateway to the Fediverse. Registration is open and the server will be moderated under clear guidelines for good behavior and zero tolerance for hate towards anyone. Inclusivity, respect, and constructive dialogue are key values of this new instance. The server is currently hosted in Finland on a small VM based on FreeBSD. Services are divided into VNet jails connected in a LAN via local bridges. A VPN system is also installed but not yet activated to move individual jails to different machines. Multimedia data and cache are hosted on another physical server, FreeBSD within a jail, with a cloud cloud flare in front. The aim is to cache and geo-distribute data, reducing network traffic on the main VPS. Reverse proxy mail server, media server, and instance are all reachable via IPv6. Cool. The instance starts empty. Uh, No unnecessary content was preloaded. I wanted to grow organically based on users' interests and following. There won't be any preemptive blocks at this stage. Users are encouraged to promote. Users are encouraged to promptly report anything they find worth flagging. Apart from my user at Stefano, I've added a bot from the beginning named FreeBSD Fortune (FB Fortune), which will automatically post a FreeBSD Fortune every hour. More similar bots for other BSD systems and beyond will be added as time permits. Join me at mastodon.bsd.café to build a constructive, inclusive community, a safe and relaxing space for everyone. Soon I'll publish a website on bsd.café with an overview of tools, services, rules, uptime and more. That's cool. Thanks for doing that.
0: Yeah, we'll watch this space and if there's something uh, new coming up, then we'll be happy to remind people to check out their favorite BSD cafe. Next thing is a bit more on the security side, because keystroke timing obfuscation has been added to SSH. Uh, The OpenBSD journal tells us in there from the SICINT department... uh, Damian Miller has committed support for keystroke timing obfuscation to SSH. What is this thing? This attempts to hide inter-keystroke timings by sending interactive traffic at fixed intervals. The default is 20 milliseconds when there is only a small amount of data being sent. It also sends fake chaff keystrokes for a random interval after the last real keystroke. These are controlled by a new SSH underscore config underscore obscure keystroke timing keyword. Okay, this utilizes a pair of new extensions to the SSH protocol, uh, which adds a pair of SSH transport protocol messages, uh, SSH, MSG, Pings, and Pong. I'm not joking, this is really true. To implement a ping capability, these messages use numbers in the local extensions number space and are advertised using the ping at openssh.com X info message with a string version number of zero. So that's interesting, but still, who uses keys to log in these days right that they don't need these keystroke timing obfuscations right or it's, did i miss it, something it
1: obfuscates it hides when you were typing in your ssh session so it masks the oh, typing action. when i'm logged in
0: already yeah. ah okay yeah then i get it okay that yeah that is useful okay now i get it <laughs> i was like because i'm using keys to log in but yeah anyway Good to have, and I think it will uh, propagate quickly to other Unixes using OpenSSH as the default SSH client, as they should.
1: BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated so that ban- it then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And This key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to Tarsnap.com to learn more.
0: All right, this brings us into the feedback and questions section of this episode, which can be filled by you by sending an email with a question, a comment, show idea, whatever you want to feedback at bstnow.tv and then it will appear in a future episode like this because this has only two and one from our own producer, which means we're getting low on questions. But let's first cover the ones that were submitted by uh, listeners. First is Daniel with a favorite episode question or comment goes like hey y'all you asked for it so here you go well i've listened to about every bsd now episode that is a long listen thanks for that i can really recall a few specific ones however there is this one cheesy catchy title that is hard to forget the can trilogy episode 181 i did have to look up the number yeah i don't know it all by head but can trilogy rings a bell that was before my time. Especially featuring d again in the last episode just made me think of it again. Uh, now, given that Brian and Adam have started this shiny new computer company named Oxide, still keeping the lights on in Illumos land, what could possibly be an excellent upcoming show? Hmm. Interviewing both, of course. Please, please, please. Cheers, Osmo Report. Ha, huh? cool. <laughs> Hello, Daniel. Uh, yeah, cool. Uh, we try, right? Could be uh definitely a nice thing to have another a can quad trilogy. It, it would
1: it would be more more interviews. Okay, next we have uh another favorite episode, this time from Sam. Dear BSD now. I noticed everyone stopped trying to name us. I think I think when we went to J- Jason it just got too confusing. Like there's so many names.
0: Uh, yeah, so yeah. many J's in the first. Letter. All you need to change your name, Benedict.
1: <laughs> would be uh, sad.
0: Yeah, I I'm, I'm the odd man Benedict C. Yeah, it doesn't work. Christopher, yeah, you should have thought about this when you picked your name. I- uh, yeah, I should have consulted with my mother S- when Samurites. I was born. In
1: um, response to your call for listener feedback on favorite <laughs> episodes, I found that those that spread the word about new features, e.g., OpenZFS two becoming standard in FreeBSD thirteen, OpenSSH supporting FIDO, have been really helpful for me as a user of FreeBSD. Episodes that discuss emerging technologies like Cherry, like Cherry, episode 468, which I guess was the interview of Brooks, and Risk 5, episode 425, I can't recall this one, have been great introductions that prompted me to read more about those subjects. I've also enjoyed interviews that discuss fun real world applications of BSD, like the Shell community that Soline Rapidan administers, episode 435. Trenton Schultz Robotics Work, episode three two one. And of course your interviews oh, yes. with BSD community celebrities like Kirk Music, episode two seven eight, and Theodorat, episode six, are ones I sought out when I found out found your show after they aired. Coverage of stories like NASA programmer remembers debugging Lisp in Deep Space, episode four six five, and the twenty-year-old bug that went to Mars, episode four three, seven, are just plain cool. Thanks for producing a great show, Sam. Thanks, Sam.
0: Oh yeah, that's really a good cut through things we covered in the past and also a good reminder to keep these interesting to the audience. And here's a question from JT to us, uh the moderators. What have your what has your favorite episode been? So, hmm I would cheat and say episode 404, where we both weren't there, <laughs> where we handed it over to completely other people uh, that you weren't used to. Uh, so the title is, of course, Hosts Not Found. That,
1: that, was, that was a good joke. Um, uh. I, I I always really enjoy the, the interviews because this is the rare time we were creating content. We get to add add something to the world. Um, and I feel like we get to give back a little bit. I really enjoyed the interview we did with David Warren Toomey, um, especially with how difficult it was to arrange with Australia, which we're now old hands at. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was probably my favorite one in recent times. I really enjoyed speaking to Warren. It was good to have someone outside the BSD community, but with lots of relevant history, and it was, it was fun to speak to him.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lucas interviews are also... Uh always nice and he keeps coming back uh, as much as we try to keep him from <laughs> this show. No, no, he's he's a good lad to talk to and yeah, he's always uh, on also his own news in the BSD space since he's writing so much and that makes it interesting and there's, there's always topics that um, you would think you haven't discussed with Lucas, right, and he still keeps coming and tells us these, so that's always uh, appreciated. Yeah, so and the interviews mix up the regular episodes a bit with um, people we haven't covered, people bringing new ideas, bringing in something dynamic. Because here we have our show notes, we go from top to bottom. And in an interview, we have, of course, we have a kind of a number of questions we sent them before, but it can totally deviate into a different direction, or we have follow up questions. And that is unpredictable because we don't know what people might say unless uh, the interview is live, right? And so, yeah, these are the ones that also are uh, yeah, reminding me of making the show interesting this way and talking to people and asking whether they would be interested in doing interviews. All right, um, that is bringing us to the end of this episode, but our producer is still nagging us to tell you that there is a BSD Now Telegram channel, apparently t.me, slash BSD now is the address. And last time we checked, there were 63 something people like in that. there? 63. There's definitely 60. It was <laughs> something 60. with a six.
1: No, no one said hello to me no, in the last okay. hour, so we'll, we'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, so, yeah, that's one other way of reaching us besides the BSD, uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv feedback email address. Uh, if you found something interesting on the web or that you want to discuss maybe or have a question, towards us or um, anything you always wanted to tell, then send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we will hopefully cover it in a future episode. Uh, That's it for us. Euro BSDCon is coming up for me at least. Uh, I think we will do some type or at least try to drag a couple people before a microphone, but I can't uh, promise anything. Uh, But once I'm back from the conference, I'll be definitely uh, giving you a bit of things that were happening there, the talks, the people, uh, other activities that happened, the Dev Summit, and other cool things you might be interested in. And yeah, then we'll be back in a regular uh, way. We also do, in the first week of October, our um, hackathon in Oslo, Norway, uh, the BSD or the FreeBSD hackathon. I think uh, Tom has a couple things on
1: that. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that no, was I wasn't prepared. prepared. To, so I was trying to figure out when October is, and it's very soon. um Yeah, the start of October, uh, we're going to do uh, a FreeBSD ports and infrastructure <laughs> hackathon in Oslo. um There's information on the FreeBSD wiki under the hackathons page. If you if you'd like to come along, you should get in touch. We're always happy to have more people we'd like to exceed the capacity of the space cuz we were told we wouldn't and i think that would be quite funny they have sofas which would be a first for a FreeBSD hackathon oh no no the one last the year more had sofas we just didn't sit on them
0: oh uh, oh yeah <laughs> that yeah that was also <laughs> special okay that's all we have for you today enjoy your week stay well and till next week